Good evening. Please turn to Revelation chapter 13. I'm going to read just from the last verse of the preceding chapter and then the whole of chapter 13. The dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number 
is 666. This is God's word. Good evening. I'm Phil, the assistant minister. Let's pray. Let's pray as we get back into Revelation tonight. Father God, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for us. Help us to understand and to see why you have given us this word and how it helps us to trust and obey the Lord Jesus and to endure faithfully for him. Amen. Well, we finally got there in Revelation 666 and the number of the beast. It's a, it's a weird chapter. There's no getting around it. Nightmarish images and secret codes. It's a, a playground for theological fruitcakes for centuries because of what it says. But behind all the terrifying imagery of beasts and the mysterious questions about 666, there is a very simple issue at the heart of this chapter. It's worship. Who will you worship? Verse 4, the people worshipped the dragon and the beast. Verse 12, the second beast made the people of the earth worship the first beast. Verse 15, those who refuse to worship the beast will be killed. And as chapter 14 begins, we have a vision of worshippers gathered round the Lamb and an angel proclaims, fear God and give him glory, worship him. Now, sometimes Christians talk as if worship is basically just singing in church, something we wish we could do. But in the Bible, it's a whole lot more than that. It's about who or what I ultimately value and serve in my life, what, what I look to to give me the ultimate grounding of my meaning and being. Now, the great atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell hated Christianity, but he, he had to observe. He said all humans have got a, what he called a cruel thirst for worship. Every human culture has worshipped, everyone, whether it's carved gods or human leaders or ideologies. We seem to have a hardwired need to treat something as God, even if we don't use that name. To be human is to be a worshipper. Now, Jesus Christ is the true God, and true fulfillment is found only in worshipping him. And John 5 tells us that rightly, when he came to the earth, he came to seek worshippers. But the devil's furious desire is to take worship from Jesus and to direct it to himself. And in Revelation 13, John reveals to us, well, the devil's two great strategies throughout history to turn our worship away from God and onto the devil. The two strategies are personified, really, as the two beasts. There's domination and there's deception. Domination and deception. So we are back in Revelation after a year's break. and Not much has happened this year, has it? Um, and it's a, a series of, you know, Revelation suddenly feels a whole lot closer with pandemics and everything. But uh, this is this series of visions that God gave to the Apostle John to, to peel back what is going on and look behind the, the history that's in front of our eyes and see what's happening in the spiritual realms. As he describes it, he uses language and imagery which is taken from the Old Testament, symbols and numbers, especially from the apocalyptic books. But God gave us this vision, not just to mess with our dreams. He gave it to us for a very, very good reason. He knows that as we look out in the world and as we see what's going on in history around us, 
It's very easy to be confused or intimidated or disturbed or deceived by what is happening. And so he wants to show us the scene behind what is seen. He wants us to understand what's really going on, what God is doing in the background behind human history. In particular, I think through this book, he wants us to grasp that we're at war if we follow Jesus. Not a physical war. Not a physical war. But we're in a spiritual war, and we forget it easily, but there is a great cosmic conflict between the good God and the evil devil. History is heading towards a conclusion. This war won't go on forever. One day the lamb will win. And after his victory will be the eternal reign of peace and delight and happiness that we cannot even imagine right now. And he wants us to hang on and to fight bravely. So he gave us this vision. Now, when we left um, at the end of chapter 12, Satan the dragon has been, has been defeated by Jesus, cast down out of heaven. And now his eyes are turned, his rage is turned to the rest of her offspring, that is the people of God, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to the testimony of Jesus. And the dragon is then at the beginning of chapter 13, stood on the shore of the sea. And let's see what happens. There's two things that we see. Firstly, the beast uses dominant power, so endure patiently. And then the second beast uses deceptive allure, so think wisely. Uh, let's look at verses 1 to 10. We'll work out who the beast is, what he does, and how we should respond. Simple. Verses 1 to 4. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns, seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power, and his throne, and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? Who on earth is the beast? Well, the first thing to say is that if you can remember from a year ago, he does have a certain sort of family resemblance to the dragon in chapter 12. In particular, if you've got a Bible, you look across at 12 verse 3, the dragon Satan has seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns, which is strikingly similar to the beast with his seven heads, ten horns, and ten crowns. Also, the dragon is struck down from heaven in verse 12, defeated by Jesus, almost definitely uh, an echo of Genesis 3.15 and the promise that the seed of Eve would crush the head of the serpent, as we're told... The beast has what looks like a fatal wound on one of his heads. The dragon has been struck down. The beast has this wound. This, the dragon, the beast, it is all the way that Satan appears. But the beast is not only like the dragon, he's also bizarrely like the lamb. And actually, as you look through this chapter, what you see is that there is a perverse kind of uh, a parody of the way Revelation has depicted Jesus. If you look at the table on the screen, um, so uh, both the beast and the lamb have horns. And in fact, in 1311, it says explicitly the second beast has two horns like a lamb. 
Uh, both have followers with names on their heads. Uh, Jesus in chapter 14, 1, we'll see next week, the beast in thirteen sixteen. Both appear slain, and, and yet they're healed and rise. The lamb in chapter 5, 6, the beast in thirteen three. Both rule over every tribe, tongue, and nation, the lamb in 5.9 and the, and the beast in 13.7. Both receive worship from all kinds of people, the lamb in 5.8-14, the beast in 13.4-8. This is a counterfeit God designed to look like God to steal our worship. It's an unholy trinity of dragon, sea beast, and land beast. Okay. So if Revelation is showing us what's going on behind the scene of human history, then, then what does this verse, beast, represent? What, why are we being told this? Well, in every age, Christians have, have wanted to see in the beast the, whatever is the, the persecuting power of the day, uh, Nero, Domitian, Stalin, Pol Pot, whoever. And John undeniably uses language which is shaped in the first century. He describes the first beast in, in quite Nero-like ways, if you look into the background. But I don't think we're meant to identify this beast with one particular person in history. Why do I say that? Well, because the, the most important context to Revelation 13 is not the Roman Empire's persecution under Nero of Christians is actually the Old Testament and Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a, a terrifying dream, and in the dream he has a vision of four great empires emerging from the sea, and they're depicted as beasts, like animals that emerge from the sea to rule. It's very like Revelation 13, except for one key difference. In Daniel's vision, the four beasts come out of the sea one after the other to take over. But in Revelation 13, all the different features of Daniel's beasts emerged into this one hideous image, this one nightmare. In other words, his point is, look, the, the beast, as he puts it, the satanic, brutal power, it, it's not just... It happens here and, and there, or in one particular person. It's kind of, it's something that's going on always through history. The healed wound probably also hints at this. Uh, brutal, God-persecuting regimes rise and rule and then die, and then new ones rise up and take their place. The beast dies and re-emerges again and again in history, in different times and places. Sometimes pretty quickly. I mean, think of Polish Christians in 1945. Oh, thank the Lord. Hitler is gone. We're free to worship God now. Oh, who's going to rule us now? Oh, Stalin. Wonderful. The beast dies. The beast rises. And what does the beast do? Well, he takes power. He demands worship and he crushes any who resist. Verse 5. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Now, government is not evil. 
Anarchy is an awful thing and government is a good gift of God, but Satan can't create anything. Instead, he perverts the things God has made good. And here, the beast is human government, not exercising God's authority to bless, but to persecute, to destroy, and to try to take God's place. He uses his power to blaspheme and slander God, to supplant God if he can. I mean, you see it, you see it pretty starkly in North Korea today. Our dear leader, Kim Jong-un, not ours, obviously, thankfully, but uh, dear leader, Kim Jong-un, he's not just the leader. He is to be worshipped. I mean, his titles, he is the great one born of heaven, the shining sun. People are to pray to him. And so Christians, because they worship Jesus, not Kim, are brutally oppressed and worked to death in labor camps. So how should God's people throughout history respond when human governments and authorities rise up who seek to crush and destroy and demand worship in Jesus' place? Verse 9, whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword, they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. We are not commanded to fight back. We are not commanded to take political power to protect ourselves. We're called to endure with patience and faithfulness. And so, so we pray for the persecuted church around the world, the hundreds of millions living under brutal regimes that make it very hard for those who worship Jesus right now, suffering at the hands of the beast. It's happening all the time. Didn't make the press at all, but Palm Sunday, there was a suicide bombing of a church in Sulawesi, Indonesia. None of us heard about it. 30 Christians seriously wounded in hospital. We pray for them. We pray for ourselves too. Not that we are under a government like that. The only thing beast-like about our government is Boris Johnson's hair. But that we pray that you know, should the day ever come when we really do face a brutal, oppressive power, we would not give in, but we would suffer faithfully. And when we encounter the mini-beasts, the, the bullies at work or in our families who try to intimidate us away from serving Jesus, we stand firm remembering that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, verse 8. So whatever happens on earth, we are eternally safe in Christ. Now, uh, sometimes walking Milo late at night, um, I bump, well, I don't bump into, I go on the opposite pavement, because there is, there is one particular dog in our area uh, who is rather terrifying. It's this enormous, pale Hound of the Baskervilles thing with blood-red, bloodshot eyes. I'm not exaggerating. There's a cross between a wolf and a Tyrannosaurus Rex. And it is just, it is actually a really quite frightening, you know, I'm all right with dogs, I've got a dog, but this is a frightening thing. But I'm not actually afraid when I walk past on the other side, uh, for two reasons. One, he's on a leash. That's just like a chain like a cross-channel ferry's anchor chain and it needs to be I mean it is a but also I know the guy who owns the dog and he's both strong enough to control it and he's also a really nice bloke he would never let the dog harm anybody and the beast if we're honest is described in pretty terrifying language here in Revelation 13 
but his authority is limited by God. He has, verse 5, his 42 months. That's it. God has him on a leash, and God is big enough to hold it, and God is kind. So we do not fear while beasts rage. We endure with patience and faithfulness, knowing that one day soon the lamb will return in triumph and the beast days will be done. That's the first beast. The devil, the dragon, is still at work when we turn to the second beast in verses 11 to 18, but the tactics are very different now. Deceptive allure. Verse 11. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast. It deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. I think this is what you call soft power. And less about dominance and crushing the opposition and more about dazzling them and deceiving them into worship. It's a dragon in lamb's clothing, verse 11. It reminds you of Jesus' warning of wolves in sheep's clothing, perhaps a hint that this beast can arise within the church as well as without. He doesn't force worship. He, he gets people to worship voluntarily as he dazzles with miraculous signs, even uh, imitating the great prophet Elijah with fire falling from heaven. We are just so easily impressed with displays of power. But the Bible again and again tells us power tells you nothing. It is godly character that marks out the true servant of Jesus for you to follow. Verse 15. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads. So they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Now, don't get too literal. This is not about tattoos of barcodes on your foreheads. It's imagery to show the tactic of the second beast. And this tactic is, it's not the first beast, the gun against the head, deny Jesus or die. It's a different challenge. It describes an economy and a culture that are shaped by the beast. So it's very hard to follow Jesus in business or socially. You can only get ahead if you are marked by, owned by, pay your dues to, worship the beast. Not a literal physical mark, but a willingness to bow before him and his moral standards. In other words, the second beast is all about, oh, you are welcome to come and to flourish, but you can only do so if you compromise. That's the challenge. In the first century, again, there's a very obvious way that this played out. The trade guilds, if you wanted to conduct 
trade, you needed to be part of one of the trade guilds. But central to the trade guilds was the worship of the emperors. And so if you refuse to offer sacrifices to Caesar because you worship Jesus, well, it's very hard to get ahead in business. Now, we're still some way away from that today. But we do see, I think, a lot more of the second beast in 21st century London than we do at the first. Uh, the, um, I don't know if you saw at Easter, the, the leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer, went to visit the Jesus House Church in Brent. They've done a phenomenal work during lockdown, serving uh, the most vulnerable people. And it was it's the big Christian festival, so perfect time for a politician to go and to you know, thank them for their work. What could be a problem? Within 48 hours, Keir Starmer had issued unreserved apologies and said it was, a, it was a terrible idea and he should never have gone. Why? Well, because it turns out that as lovely as the church is, they hold to the Bible's teaching on sex and relationships. Oh. Now, we mustn't go overboard. Uh, there are lots of junior MPs who uh, are Christians, but as the former Lib Dem leader, Tim Farron, discovered, it is getting increasingly difficult to be a serious follower of Jesus and hold high political office in this country. It's getting harder. Now, it seems to me that at the moment, it is really only those in the privileged positions, those in the media spotlight in sport or entertainment or politics, who find this. But little by little... It is, a, it is getting a little bit harder to both fit in and, and, and get ahead without compromising faith in Jesus by sharing and affirming our culture's morality, signing up to our culture's agendas, especially in matters of sex and relationship. I think that's what he's talking about here, receiving the mark of the beast. This beast doesn't come snarling and raging and threatening. He comes with open hands, offering Economic advancements, yep, you can have it. Cultural popularity, yep, you can have it. Chance to fit in, all yours. The chance to not be seen as a religious weirdo, absolutely. All that you could want, the comfort and the ease that we long for. All of it. You've just got to compromise to have it. Stop worshipping Jesus alone. In other words, he makes the path of obedient worship of Jesus difficult and costly and unattractive. You can still follow Jesus, you'll just find yourself on the outside. And that's a big challenge. I think there is a very, very important reminder for us in this second beast. I hear a lot of Christians, uh, Christian leaders, emphasizing that, look, if we just stop being so judgmental, and get on with serving and loving others the way that Jesus did, we will find that our culture stops being so hostile and, and suspicious of us. And there is a lot of truth in that. So 1 Peter 2 does say, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. But that's not the only thing the Bible says. Revelation 13 warns us just as a, the book that many of us are reading, Steve McAlpine's Being the Bad Guys does, that no matter how well we love people, if we're not willing to compromise where our culture says one thing and Jesus says another, if we're not willing to honor the values of our culture above those of Jesus, 
and there will be times when we find we're not accepted. Receive the mark of the beast or suffer rejection, scorn and ridicule. Okay, how do you respond to it? Verse 18. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it's the number of a man. The number is 666. Be wise. And the particular wisdom he calls us to have is to, is to calculate the number of the beast. Now, they, there are ancient arts of gematria which enable you to assign numerical values to letters of the alphabet. And so people have come up with all sorts of things. But the problem is, John doesn't tell us which language to use or how high a value to give to letters. If you just go A1, B2, C3 with the Greek alphabet, you can get Matthew J. Fuller, Christchurch, Mayfair, 666. It took me 20 minutes. I can do it with any one of your names. It's, it's just, it can mean anything. But numbers haven't worked like that in Revelation. Numbers have had symbolic value. And seven throughout Revelation has been the number of God and of completeness. And here we find the devil appearing as a dragon and two beasts, a demonic counterfeit trinity, and then three numbers, 666. Similar to God, almost looking like God, but not quite dominating and deceiving many into worshipping him who are fooled by his displays. It's also very importantly, I think, in verse 18, the number of a man, a human number. The beast doesn't appear as literal monsters, but as human cultures and human authorities. War is always a time of propaganda and lies. And we will need to make sure that we are tuning in daily to God's truth broadcast in the Bible so that we can spot the beast's challenge, so that we can be wise enough to see where the compromises are dangerous, so we're not deceived by the mixed messages of our confused culture. The beasts are terrifying and devious, and we're fools if we don't take them seriously. But one day, they will be defeated. Already as he died on the cross, Jesus struck the fatal blow. And Revelation 19 tells us that having been cast down out of heaven in Revelation 12, the dragon will be flung with the beasts into the lake of fire when Jesus rides out as a victorious warrior at the end of history. And so as his followers, Jesus' people do not need to be fearful we are more than conquerors in him. And in the light of that, I think the call to us is to worship Jesus faithfully. That's not just seen in what we do with our lips when we're allowed to sing in church again. It's seen in our willingness to honor Jesus when it costs. Even when doing so is unpopular and goes against the thinking of the key influences of our culture. I think we have to expect there will be times in work in our social groups, where we won't be able to get what we want without compromising. I had a phone call a couple of weeks ago from somebody in this congregation saying, look, work has offered me this, this role, but it does seem to me that it's, I can't do it and honor Jesus because of what they're asking me to do and who they're asking me to work for. But you need a clear grasp of the Bible's teaching and a certain hope of Jesus' victory if you're going to survive and thrive in those challenges. 
But I think the particular value for me of Revelation 13 is, is it clarifies for me when I do cower in fear or compromise because I value my career or popularity more than Jesus, I'm not just being weak. I'm worshipping the beast. So endure patiently and think wisely so that we'll stand firm together and worship Jesus wholeheartedly until the war is over. For one day soon, his reign of peace will begin and his victory will be enjoyed. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for this sobering vision and we pray that we would take the warning seriously and we pray that you would give us strength to endure and wisdom to understand that we might worship the Lord Jesus wholeheartedly until the day he returns and we enter his joyful kingdom. Amen.